0: Hi there, welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Samuel chapter 21, please stand if you can when you get that. 1 Samuel chapter 21, Now David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, Why are you alone? No one is with you. So David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has ordered me on some business and said to me, Do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you. And I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Now therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have at least kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest and said to him, Truly women have been kept from us about three days since I came out. And the vessels of the young men are holy, and their bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. So the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread there but the show bread, which had been taken from before the Lord, in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. And David said to Himelech, Is there not here on hand a spear or a sword? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. So the priest said, The sword of the Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Eli, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is no other except that one here. David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. Father, we thank you so much. As Lisa was praying, I just echo her prayer, Father, that everything that is said, all the songs that are sung, as we remember communion this morning, this everything that we do today, let it be glorifying to your name, we ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Imagine this scene with me. Max Lecato writes, The desperate man sits in the corner of the church assembly. Dry mouth, moist palms, he barely moves. He feels out of place in a room full of disciples, but where else can he go? He just violated every belief that he cherishes, hurt every person that he loves, spent a night doing what he swore he would never do. And now on Sunday, he sits and stares. He doesn't speak. He thinks, if these people knew what I did. He could be an addict, a thief, a child beater, a wife cheater. He could be a she, single, pregnant, and confused. He could be a number of people. For any number of people come to God's house in these types of conditions. Hopeless, hapless, and helpless. How will the congregation react? Will he find criticism or compassion? Rejection or acceptance? Raised eyebrows or extended hands? David is on the lam, a wanted man in Saul's court. His young face decorates post office posters. His name tops Saul's to-kill list. He runs, looking over his shoulder, sleeping with one eye open, and eating with his chair next to the restaurant exit. What a blurring series of events. Was it just two or three years ago that he was tending flocks in Bethlehem? Back then, the big day was watching sheep sleep. Then came Samuel, a ripe old prophet with a fountain of hair and a horn of oil. As the oil covered David... So did God's spirit. David went from serenading sheep to serenading Saul. The overlooked runt of Jesse's litter became the talk of the town. King Arthur to Israel's Camelot years. Handsome and humble. Enemies feared him. Michael married him. Saul hated him. After the sixth attempt on his life, David gets the point. Saul doesn't like me. With a price on his head and a posse on his trail, he kisses Michael and life in the court goodbye and runs. Welcome back to our study in 1 Samuel. Hope this morning will be an encouragement for anyone who has tasted from the chalice of failure. I'm speaking of those times when we tried to be strong, but instead we botched everything. And even those times when we didn't even try at all, but instead stuck our tongue out at God and sinned with reckless abandon. What do we do when we finally come to our senses? How does God view us now? Is there any hope? Can we soar again with broken wings and shattered dreams? That's what we'll be looking at in the next couple of weeks. Look at verse 1 with me, please. Now David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one is with you? So David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has ordered me on some business and said to me, Do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you. Now I have directed my young men to such and such a place." Approximately the last third of the book of 1 Samuel is devoted to the period of King David's life when he is on the run from Saul. It might seem a little like the long chase scene at some of the movies you might watch. The hero lurches from one crisis to the next. He escapes one threat, only to fall into deeper danger. One clue to the significance of these chapters of 1 Samuel is the fact that the book of Psalms contains no fewer than seven psalms that are explicitly associated with the events that we will be studying. It may not, then, be coincidental that approximately a third of each of the gospel accounts in the New Testament is devoted to the last week of Jesus' earthly life, just as about the last third of 1 Samuel is about these troubles of David. When David fled to Nob, it marked the beginning of an exile that lasted about ten years. Now, that's an easy thing to allow to roll off of our tongues. But think about that. Ten years of exile, running for your life and hiding in caves, not for just ten days or even ten months. That would be difficult enough, but for ten long years. Try to imagine what that would be like this morning. We need to sometimes remind ourselves that the people we read about in the Bible are real people with real feelings. This isn't fiction. These aren't characters in one of the left behind novels. These were people just like you and just like me. Try to keep that in mind as we make our way through David's life. Now, if you remember from a few weeks ago, at this particular point in David's history, God had shot the arrow beyond him. David was going through this situation then not because of any failure or sin that he had personally committed, but simply because of God's purpose in proving the reality of David's love, his devotion, and his faith to the Lord. The crucible of testing was to prepare David for a throne for which he had already been chosen. You see, each and every crutch in the life of David was being removed. Like it says in our PowerPoint, he was being pushed out of his comfort zone. He had a good position in the palace, but lost it. He had a wife, but lost her. He had a wise counselor in Samuel, but he lost him. He had a close and trusted friend in Jonathan, but he lost him. And as we will see at the end of chapter 21, David is also going to lose even his self-respect. One by one, the crutches of his life are being removed. But with all that said, David is not always a great role model for us. He does quite a few things that are clearly in the wrong, just as we do. And the first part of this account is clearly one of those situations. David is afraid for his life, and so he lies and he deceives. But in spite of his sin, at the end of this event, we still observe a man who is a man after God's own heart. And that ought to be our goal also this morning. Because we are human, sometimes we're going to be afraid. And sometimes that fear will lead us to do things that are clearly sinful. But the important issue is how we deal with that sin. The critical thing is whether or not we can recover from our actions And get right with God again. And this is where David's life can really help us. Interestingly, at least two psalms originated from this very incident. They are Psalms 34 and Psalm 56. Now Psalm 56 is a cry from David in the terrifying plight in which he found himself. And Psalm 34 is his thrilled and relieved expression of praise when all this is over. And while it's difficult to determine the background of every psalm that David wrote, it's likely that David's fugitive years are reflected in many of his psalms. And I think it's wonderful that David wrote so many encouraging psalms during a period of great suffering. And from them, God's people today can find strength and courage in their own times of testing. For example... Our Lord quoted Psalm 22.1 and Psalm 31.5 when he was on the cross. So we see that the Lord can even turn the hard times in life into a psalm. C.A. Spurgeon writes this, The music of the sanctuary is in no small degree indebted to the trials of the saints. Affliction is the tuner of the harps of sanctified songsters. If you haven't discovered it yet, you'll come to understand that it is the difficult places in life that elicits the most growth. It's true that people are like tea bags. If you want to know what's truly inside them, just drop them into hot water. Unfortunately, what is inside David right now is fear that leads to deceit, and it's going to cause him a lot of problems in the next couple of weeks. I guess I better finish giving you guys the background so you can... Go to Cracker Barrel and beat the Baptist. (laughs) We see here the priest Ahimelech asking David, why is he he traveling alone and not with some type of entourage that would be befitting, befitting his position? But this is exactly what it seems to be. It's a fabricated story more commonly known as a lie. Now, some have suggested that there may have been a double meaning in David's words. They say David's words were almost true if we understand the king to be God, who has indeed charged David with a secret matter, namely the future kingdom. That seems to me to be a bit too subtle, and it still leaves the part about the appointment of the young men left unexplained. Allow me to insert something here that we all need to be reminded of this morning. A half-truth is a whole lie. What do I mean? Well, any time I lead someone to draw a false conclusion over any matter, I have lied to them, even if I technically told them the truth. Let me give you a couple of examples. You should not trust Pastor John with your children. I once saw him smack a child with his open hand. Now, in this example, the statement could be technically true. What I failed to tell you was Pastor John slapped the child on the back because the kid was choking on a hard piece of candy. Or how about this one? Someone says, I'm a really good driver. In the past 45 years, I've only gotten four speeding tickets. Well, that sounds pretty good, and that's technically correct, unless the person started driving three days ago. So we can see we can be technically correct while the whole time lying through our teeth. Now, David was doing exactly what he appears to be doing, which is deceiving Ahimelech in order to calm his fears and to win his trust. This deception is going to have disastrous consequences in due course, which David is lately or later going to deeply regret. David tells three lies here, one on top of another, and that's the problem with lies. When you start lying, you have to start building a whole new system of what reality is. It's like the story of the woman who stops at a grocery store to buy a chicken. The butcher reaches into the barrel and grabs the very last chicken that he has. He puts it on the scale and tells the woman how much it weighs. She says, I really need a little bit more chicken than that. Do you have any larger ones? Without a word, the butcher puts that chicken back into the barrel, gropes around as if he's finding another one, He pulls the exact same chicken out and places it on the scales. This chicken weighs one pound more, he says. The woman ponders for a second and says, You know what? I'll take both of them. (laughs) Lying can get you into a lot of trouble. Or as my old black pastor used to say, Scotty, the flesh is crazy and it can get you killed. Wise words. But why did David lie? Because he was at this point... Afraid and he was exhibiting a lack of faith. And fear is always the enemy of faith. This is the battleground of Christian experience. But the confusing and difficult part of life is so often the providences of God seems to run completely counter to the promises that we have received from him. Now, did God say that David would be king? Yes. So can he die? No. Should he be afraid? No. Should he lie? No. Does he lie? Yes. Why? Because he is just like us. Sometimes when we know what we know and how we behave are sometimes incongruous with one another. Need more biblical proof? Did Abraham have a promise that he would have a child and raise up a great nation? Yes, he did. Did he lie to the favor about his wife being his sister? Yes. Was it wrong? Yes. Did Isaac lie? Yes, he did. Did Jacob lie? You better believe Jacob lied. He could have had a doctorate in falsehood. So we see that even some of the heroes in the in our faith have been known to stretch the truth. Or in church terms, they call that to evangelistically speak. Which is what happens when people ask pastors how many people go to their church. And they say about 200, give or take a few, which means I actually have about 64 people. Bottom line, lying is a part of our old nature that we should crucify daily. Listen to Colossians 3.5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked, that's past tense, when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices." And have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who has created him. What am I saying? Simply, lying should not be part of our lives anymore, because it's not who we are anymore. Verse 3, please. Now, therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand, or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have at least kept themselves from women. Then David answered the priest and said to him, Truly, women have been kept from us about three days since I came out. And the vessels of the young men are holy, and their bread is in effect common, even though it was sanctified in the vessel this day. So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread which has been taken from before the Lord, in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. So the priest informs David that there is no common bread on hand what's he talking about there? These were the 12 uh, loaves baked according to the regulations in Leviticus 24. These loaves were, according to the law, to be arranged on the table in the tabernacle every Sabbath day. Now, it could be implied from that, therefore, that the day David came to Nob may have very well been the Sabbath day. Just like the day that Jesus' disciples plucked the ears of grain, which we will look at here in a moment. Now, Ahimelech may have wondered he had done the right thing or did he break the law or did he obey a higher law he decided the hungry stomach was a higher law rather than dot the eye of God's code he met the needs of God's child and giving David the bread the priest was breaking the letter of the law but he was keeping the spirit of the law. This teaches us that God's law is intended for us to serve and not hinder the coming of God's kingdom. Also, the events of Nob must be understood in the light of the fact that David was chosen to be God's king. Whatever Ahimelech was thinking, his actions were right as he served God's king. He did not attempt to set God's law over God's chosen king. In due due course, we will see that Ahimelech will lay down his life. For God's King. You know, Jesus calls the church to always lean in the direction of compassion. A millennium later, the son of David remembers the flexibility of Ahimelech. This is Matthew 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, Your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priest alone? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are yet innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Jesus uses this incident to teach a lesson on true obedience and spiritual discernment. Jesus, our greater than David, reached back into the story and commends Ahimelech for what he does here. Now, why is that? Because Jesus uses it as an illustration in his teaching that there is something more important than the law, and that is love. Human needs always has a higher priority than religious traditions or regulations. More important than anything else is that we simply love people. Let us return to that Sabbath day a thousand years earlier when David came to Nob. Jesus said to the Pharisees who were accusing him, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those with him. It was a Sabbath day, and Jesus and his disciples were walking through the grain fields. And as his disciples plucked some grain, they were doing something explicitly allowed by the law. Deuteronomy 23.25 says this, If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you should not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. It seems that Jesus and his disciples were being watched closely that day. For some Pharisees immediately raised the question of their doing something that was not lawful to do on the Sabbath. It was not lawful to work on the Sabbath, they said. And harvesting grain is work, and your disciples are harvesting grain. Now, it is probable that Jesus saw the developing hostility of the Pharisees and the other Jewish leaders towards him as comparable to the growing animosity that Saul had towards David. This could be the one reason why Jesus' mind went back to this incident. My question is, what were the Pharisees doing in the grain fields on a Sabbath day to begin with? It just seems a trite odd to me. I imagine Jesus and his disciples strolling through the countryside, and as they enter the grain fields, a bunch of Pharisee heads start popping up all over the grain fields. It's like that Old Testament version of whack-a-mole. Heads were popping up everywhere. At least that's how my admittedly addled mind sees it. The Pharisees and their hostility to Jesus were more like Saul. In fact, it could be said that their sinister surveillance of Christ and his actions. They were more like Doeg the Edomite, which we'll read about in a minute. Now, this resemblance makes sense because a few lines later in Luke's record, we read this. After Jesus had demonstrated his authority and power as Lord of the Sabbath, it says they were filled with fury and disgust with one another how they might kill Jesus. Now, the exchange that he had with the Pharisees could have easily become a debate about what was and was not lawful to do on the Sabbath, and whether plucking some grain and rubbing them in your hands constituted threshing and harvesting. Now, this is the kind of discussion the Pharisees had invited, but Jesus did not give them that kind of satisfaction. Instead, he accused them of not reading, or at least not understanding, the Scriptures. In Jesus, someone greater than David had come. Now, Jesus concluded his altercation with the Pharisees by saying this. The Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Verse 7, please. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. And his name was Doeg, an Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. This is an interesting little vignette. If this was a film, this would, be, this would be the momentary glimpse of a figure in the shadows who would come to the forefront later. If this were a movie when Doeg appeared on the screen, you would get that music that always accompanies the villain. This guy is a real piece of work. He is El Crepus Maximus, if you're taking notes. We are told that Doeg was an Edomite. Now, why would the Bible add that? Well, we know that the Edomites were historic enemies of Israel. Descended from Esau, they had refused to allow the Israelites safe passage in the days of Moses. Now, if you remember back to chapter 14, Saul had already fought the Edomites and perhaps had taken Doeg into his service after defeating them. And so David catches sight of Doeg the Edomite, who was Saul's chief shepherd. And for whatever reason we're not given it, he was detained at Nob. But now David knows that he has been compromised as far as the safety goes in staying there. You can almost picture Doeg snooping around the tabernacle. Little known fact, because of his propensity for sneaking and snooping around, he was given the nickname Snoop Doggy Doeg. Remember that name. We'll meet Doeg again, although in your mind you're always going to picture him with dreadlocks from now on. Verse 8, please. And Jesus said to Ahimelech, Is there not here on hand a spear or a sword? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. For so the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it. For there is no other except that one here. And David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. The only weapon in the entire sanctuary was a relic, the sword of Goliath. The very sword that David had used to guillotine the head of the giant. Author Eugene Peterson sees this interchange as a function of the church. This is good. He writes, a sanctuary is where I, like David, get bread and a sword, strength for the day, and weapons for the fight. Again, there is a story here that we are not fully told. At the end of the account of the slain of Goliath, we're told that David put the Philistines' armor and weapons in his tent. How and when the sword was entrusted to Ahimelech, we're not told. But it's likely that David would have known about it. And it even seems very probable that this was the purpose of David's visit to Ahimelech all along. More important for the the fugitive from Saul than five loaves of bread would have been the great sword of Goliath. Certainly, he was eager to get it into his hands. David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. But what's fascinating to me is earlier when David met Goliath, he refused Saul's sword and Saul's armor and trusted in only God with a sling and a stone. But now because of his fear and his lack of trust, he's wanting to take that same exact sword They did Goliath absolutely no good in their initial battle. This is what happens when we reason using our flesh and not the Holy Spirit. In closing, we now see that David is on a downward spiral. He's a lover of God, but he's trusting in his lies and in Goliath's sword. Before, when he was in the spirit, he refused to take Saul's weapons, choosing instead to rely only on God, who had given him victory over the bear and the lion. But now he seeks material weapons. 2 Corinthians 10, 4, however, reminds us this. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal or natural, but they are spiritual. But when we're in a carnal place, we start depending on carnal weapons. As I was studying this section, my mind went back to John 18, 10. It says, Simon Peter, then having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. Fortunately for Malchus, Jesus was on the scene and was able to pick up the ear out of the dirt and reattach it to Malchus's head. Which always makes me think of Mr. Potato Head for some reason. What I want us to remember is that if you put confidence in the flesh... You will respond in the flesh. And that's always a bad idea. In fact, living and responding in the flesh can make you do some pretty stupid and crazy things. We'll come back next week and we'll see both stupid and crazy in the life of David. And Lord, that's what we want to do, Father. We want to trust in you and not trust in our own flesh. The things that the world tries to give us. We want to walk in your Holy Spirit. I pray, Father, that you would make that true to each one of us. Let us realize, Lord, that doing it our way never works out in the long run. But doing it your way, although it may be initially difficult, always works out. Drive that into our spirits today, I pray. Ask in Christ's name, amen. Have David and Sarah come up.